We're in Galatians 6 verse 10 today. I read a story years ago, and I don't remember who wrote it. I don't remember many of the details, so I'm just going to share with you what I remember because the, the bare bones of the story really stuck with me. It was about a, a, a man who'd grown up in a home that was very hostile. The, the parents just chose to, to raise their children through ridicule, through competition, basically pitting their kids against one another, sort of like, uh, hey, why can't you make the grades your sister made? And, and how come you can't be like your brother? And hey, kids, look at your moron little brother that hadn't learned how to tie his shoes yet, and he's already five years old, that kind of thing. Shame, intimidation, all those things were very prevalent in that house. And dinner times for this young man were, were especially painful because all the family was together then, and that, that made things worse because everybody was competing with one another to see who could make someone else feel the worst. And so sometimes he would get up in the middle of dinner, he wasn't even finished with his meal and just excuse himself. It's not like anybody was gonna miss him and he'd slip out. Because there was a family down the street, he didn't really know them well, but he knew of them and he'd been close to their house, he'd seen the way they treated one another. In that house, things were completely different. And sometimes he would slip away from dinner, he'd go down the street and he would actually crawl up under the porch of that house. And this will break your heart if you think about it long enough. He would just crawl up into that porch and listen as that family ate dinner. Just to listen to them laughing together, listen to them talking to one another as if they loved each other. And, and he would think about how good it would be to be in that kind of family. And he would daydream about, what if I, my family was like that? And, and in one of his daydreams, he'd think, you know, at dinner in my family, if I spill iced tea on myself... They, they're just immediately on top of me like wolves. I mean, they, they just can't, they're competing with one another to see who can make me feel the worst about it. But if I, if I spilled tea on myself in that family, they'd all laugh too, but then they would, they would compete to see who could help me the most. Somebody would go run, get a towel and clean it up and somebody else would go get me another glass of iced tea and somebody else would go get me a dry shirt and dad would just laugh and say, well, thank God it wasn't the case though. I mean, it, was, it would just be that kind of home. And we're in this series called Why Church because there are so many people today, including a lot of folks who've grown up in church, who say, well, I'm spiritual, but I'm not really, really religious anymore. I believe in God, I pray, I maybe even read the Bible, but I don't have any use for the church itself. And I think if we're in that position, we need to understand what God thinks about the church. God hasn't changed his mind. We've already seen in this series that the church is the bride of Christ, and he expects us to be as committed to his bride as he is. It's God's building project in which he's bringing together people of every nation and race and tribe and tongue in one house to show the world that peace is found within the family of God. Last week, we looked at that how the church is the pillar of the truth, how we uphold the truth to all of culture, it, not just in what we teach, not just in what we believe in, but in how we live, and we're, we're responsible for holding one another accountable. To, to speak the truth and to live the truth. And I don't usually say this because I know how busy life is and, and this sounds kind of egotistical, but if there's ever been a sermon series that you should listen to all of them, this is it. So if you've missed any of those, and I'm sure many of you have, uh, go back, listen to them on the podcast or on, on the website uh, because we need to all be on the same page and know why we exist as a church. We don't just exist because there's been a, a church in downtown Conroe that calls itself First Baptist for over 100, almost 130 years. That's not the reason why we're here. 
God has a purpose for every body of believers that, that transcends any tradition that exists in humanity. So today we're going to look at a different purpose of the church. Galatians 6.10 says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now let me just break down a few phrases from that verse. First of all, that, that word household. It's from the Greek word oikos, which, yes, the, the Greek yogurt is named after it, okay? Oikos in Greek means house. And, and in, the, in the New Testament, usually when it's used, it refers to a literal family. For instance, in 1 Timothy 5.8, when Paul writes to Timothy and says, anybody in your church that doesn't take care of his family, especially his immediate family, is, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. But in some cases, Paul uses it metaphorically, and here's one of those cases. He's saying that the church is God's family. The church is the household of God. You may remember just before Christmas, we talked about adoption and how salvation is God bringing us off the streets as orphans, as hoodlums, into his home and we become his sons and daughters. And that's wonderful. But it's not just that we get a new father, it's that we get new brothers and sisters as well. We become part of the family of God. And when he says, as we have opportunity, let us do good. That opportunity, that word opportunity, you can read into that divine appointments. That's a term we use a lot. Or how God just sets up opportunities for you. If you've got eyes to see, if you're prayed up, you'll see opportunities in front of you. You'll see, oh, that poor soul, they need help. Well, that's God's divine appointment to you. It's, it's your job to do something for them. And when he says, to everyone, but especially the household of faith, he's not saying that being kind to Christians is more important than being kind to non-Christians. What he's saying, because he knows, Paul knows that his heart is geared toward evangelism, right? And Paul is preaching to himself just like the rest of us. He's saying, in your zeal, in your yearning to win people to faith, don't overlook the opportunities you have every day to love on your own family in Christ. Don't miss the opportunities to bless your fellow believers. Now, there's this wonderful detail in Paul's own conversion story. Some of you are, are aware of this. Some of you kind of miss it because it's such a famous story. We know about Paul in Acts 9 going to Damascus and meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus and he is blinded by the glory of God. And then later that day, God comes to a, a faithful Christian brother in Damascus named Ananias and he says, Ananias, I want you to go to the house on Straight Street and there's a guy there named Saul from Tarsus. I want you to lay hands on him so he'll be healed. And, and, and Ananias does what we often do in prayer. He has this idea that he has to inform God about the circumstances, right? It's like, God, I'm not sure if you're aware, but this guy Saul is not a good guy. Um, he, he's, been, he's been arresting, he's been torturing, he's been, he's been killing Christians, your people, in Jerusalem. The only reason he's here is because there weren't enough Christians to kill in Jerusalem, so he's on his way here to, to kill us. And I've been dreading his arrival. Now you want me to go and, and lay hands on him? Are you sure? And God says, yes, I'm sure. I've got plans for this guy, and, and, and you, you just follow my lead. And Ananias, to his everlasting credit not only goes and does what God tells him to do, but he doesn't do what I think 90% of us would do, which is to walk in and say, okay, you sorry, scum-sucking pig, you, you ridiculous son of the devil, I don't know why God wants you to be healed, but he does, so I'm here to do his bidding. No, he walks in and he says, brother Saul, 
Brother Saul, God has sent me to heal you. Now, why would he call him brother? I mean, would you call Bin Laden brother several years ago when he was still alive? I wouldn't. That's what Paul was to Ananias, and yet he called him brother. Because he knew this man has met Jesus. And nothing's the same anymore. Now he's my brother. No matter what he's done to people I know personally, no matter what he was planning to do to me, he's my brother now. That's all that matters. For that matter, why did God send Ananias into that house in the first place? You know that God didn't need some human being to go lay hands on Paul to to heal him. God could have just said it. God could have just made it happen. I think God wanted... Saul of Tarsus to open his eyes and see there in front of him one of the people he was planning to arrest and drive back to Jerusalem as a way of saying, this is your family now. Because he knew here Saul has just lost everything. He's a rising star within Judaism. That's all gone. He, He surely had a family who was proud of him. That's all gone. Everything he believed in, everything he loved was gone. And God was saying, not everything is gone. You've got something new. You've got a family who will never leave you. You've got a family that is your forever family from this day forward. And that idea that we're part of a family, we react to it in a variety of ways, don't we? Because there are people in this room, people watching online, who have a difficult at best relationship with their family of origin. And maybe the family you grew up in is more a source of pain than it is of peace or tranquility or guidance or comfort or enjoyment. And for those of you who are in that position, the idea that you have a new family, a forever family who you'll enjoy for all of eternity, that sounds too good to be true. But for others of you, you say, well, I don't need a family. I've got a family. I don't need friends. I have friends. Just hit me with a sermon once in a while and get me a little boost so I can live a little better life. But I don't need all these intricate, intimate relationships. I, I just... I just don't need it. And to that, I say two things. Number one, someday you will. Someday, just the friends you've made on on the outside, just the family you have, your family of origin, that won't be enough. You will need more. I've been there, trust me. I've been in a position where I've said, hey, my parents are still alive. I love them. My wife is my best friend. I can tell her anything. I don't need anything else. And then the day came when I needed more, when I had things that I couldn't dump on them when I needed more, and that day will come for you. And if you haven't invested in these relationships with your new brothers and sisters in Christ, you will regret that. But even more so, even if you don't think you need us, we need you. See, God has brought you to us because there's something you can bring to us. There's thing, there are things you can add to us that we're lacking if we don't have them. Uh, when I was a very young preacher, I had a lady in my church named Mrs. Sutton, and she had married uh, a man much older than her, 25 years older to be exact. And so when she was just getting to the golden years of her life, her husband was very, very elderly. And, and he had gotten to the point where he couldn't see at all anymore and he could barely hear and so going to church just wasn't enjoyable for him he could he could make out some of the words here and there but not much he couldn't really when someone came up and talked to him he couldn't understand them didn't know who was talking to him and one day he said I don't know why I go to church anymore I don't get anything out of it and she said to him because you inspire other people that's why you keep coming to church 
Because all those people in that church, they look and they say, boy, if old Mr. Sutton gets himself out of bed with all his problems and all he's struggling with and he comes to church every Sunday, then I have no excuse. And she said he never, ever complained about going to church after that because it it showed him there's a reason for me to be there. And I never met Mr. Sutton. He was already in heaven by the time I came along, but I have great respect for him for saying, it's not about me. I need to be part of this family because they need me even if I'm not getting much from them. And then there are people who would say, yeah, Jeff, I've, I've tried that. I gave myself over to a church, maybe this church, who knows? And I got burned. I ran into people who were phony. I ran into people who were stuck in their little cliques and they wouldn't let me in. I, I got gossiped about. I got my motives impugned. I, I got mistreated. And, and drug through the dirt and I'm not doing it again. I'll, I'll come, I'll sit in the pew, I'll listen to a sermon because I do love Jesus, but I am not opening my heart to the church ever again. And I understand that. The story I told you at the beginning was told by a pastor and he told it to illustrate the fact that some churches are like the family he grew up in. And some people in church are like that. It's all about competition and I I need to show that I'm more righteous than you are and I need to find fault in you because it makes me feel better about myself and I need to complain whenever things don't go my way, whether it's the style of music or the temperature in the sanctuary or or the way she looked at me from across the, the life group room. I don't know. I just need to complain about something and just understand this. That's not the way God intended it for it to be. Other churches are like that family from down the street. They're so full of warmth, so full of compassion and companionship and fellowship that it it just, it's a breath of fresh air. In fact, I have seen people, I've known people in my own family who've left that first kind of church and they've gone to that second kind of church. And it's like they, they realize for the first time, I've been living in a house that's full of smoke, breathing in smoke every day, just choking to death, and now I'm breathing free air for the first time. And y'all, I don't typically advocate for bouncing from church to church. If a friend or a family member calls and complains about their church, my first, my first suggestion is always stay, stay, stay. They need you. They need people like you. How are they ever gonna turn around if, if people like you leave? But sometimes... Sometimes, and I have finally told people, listen, you need to leave. You're you're in a position where you are not being fed. And you need to go, you need to go where there's love, where there's warmth, where there's grace. Question for us today is, which kind of church are we? And I know immediately we want to say, hey, we are the second kind of church. But understand this, I've been in a lot of churches both as a member and as a visitor. I have never once been in a church that says, you know, we're one of those cold kind of churches. (laughs) In fact, every church I've ever been in, if you ask them, what is the strength of your church? They'll say, well, we're not the biggest, we're not the best at a lot of things, but we are a friendly, loving church, without exception. And that's not true of all of them, I promise you. I wish it were, but it's not. So how do we know if we're that kind of family? And how do we get there if we're not? And if we are, how do we keep from backsliding into becoming a toxic church? Because believe you me, aside from false doctrine, there's nothing the devil would work harder to see happen in us than to make us cold and angry and divided and and, and just at each other's throats. 
How do we keep that from happening? Well, in the scriptures, fortunately, there are 59 one another's. 59 times the writer of the gospels or the letters says, do this to one another. 59 times. You can thank the Lord in heaven that this is not a 59-point sermon, okay? (laughs) I will not attempt to cover all of them, but I do want to run through several of them. And you can measure what you see in us and in yourselves through what you hear here. But first, let me just say this. All of these one another's, all of these one another's require being present, being in the room with one another. This is something you can't do remotely. Now listen, I am so thankful to God that we have the technology and and we have uh, James on staff and, and all the people who work to stream our worship services into homes. I think that's a fantastic tool and especially these past two years it's been huge and believe you me nobody comes to this church well I shouldn't say nobody very few people ever visit this church anymore that don't watch us online first and I don't blame them and I think it's a wonderful tool and we're going to keep doing it and if you're still watching from home because that's what your doctor has told you to do for health reasons you keep doing that i've said from the beginning let your family doctor tell you what is right what is best listen to him and do what he says but on the other hand if you're going to restaurants if you're going to ball games if you're going to department stores it's time to come back to church it's time to come back and be in the house of god not because i need the ego boost It's not about that. The things we're talking about here, you can't really experience your family when you're sitting on your couch at home. And we know this. You know how we know this? For the past two years, we've all experienced some things remotely that we used to do in person, right? We've had a Zoom Thanksgiving or we had a drive-by birthday party. And I promise you, unless you really don't like your family, nobody, nobody ever got done with the Zoom Thanksgiving or the drive-by birthday party and said, you know, that was as good as the real thing. Let's just do it that way from now on. No, we all said, man, I can't wait till we get back together in person. If you can't, if you can't have family in your home without being together, the same is true of the family of God. So, I think I've made my point. We miss you. Come back when, when, when your doctor says it's okay for you to come back, and, and we'll welcome you back and, and rejoice to see you. Now, the one another's. What does it take to be that kind of family? Here's one. Bear one another's burdens. Bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. You know, I, I've reached the age, one of the good things about reaching this age is 20 years ago, all of my friends and me and my wife, we were always moving, right? So there was always a time when someone was asking me to help them move. These days that doesn't happen as much because I'm friends with people who are pretty stable. But man, is there anything worse than being asked to help somebody move? Because when when you're asked to help someone move, their problems become your problems. They've got that upright piano. Not your problem until that day. It's your problem then, right? That sectional couch or that sleeper sofa, you know, those, those things they were supposed to have boxed up before you got there but didn't. And you give up a whole day off and you scrape off all the skin on all 10 knuckles and you totally herniate yourself. And at the end, all you get is, well, thanks. You bear their burdens and you get nothing in return. 
But that's what we're called to do as Christians for one another, to see someone else struggling and say, I'm gonna be there. We don't wait to be asked. We don't wait to be guilted into it. We just say, that person's weeping. I need to find out why. I need to find out how I can pray for her, what I can do for him. And if someone's grieving, it means you go and sit with them. And if someone's going through times of doubt and and despair, you let them vent and just say, I don't understand why God's doing this to me. And you don't argue with them, you just let them vent and then you pray with them at the end. And if someone's struggling financially, you may not have the resources to pull them out of the hole, but at least you can sit with them and kind of try to find some answers. The answers are there. And when you see a young person and you think, okay, I'm, I'm gonna become part of their lives, I'm gonna invest in them, I'm gonna pray for them, I'm gonna take them out to lunch, I'm gonna encourage them. Their problems become your problems and that's what we're called to do because that's what Christ did for us. That's why it says bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. I'll give you another. Actually, three more in a row. Bear with one another, be patient with one another and forgive one another. Have you wondered why God would put the same command in three different ways in the Bible? Well, because he knew that churches are full of sinners. I have never met the church yet that wasn't full of sinners. In fact, if you ever find the church that's not full of sinners, leave immediately because you're going to mess it up, right? (laughs) And because we're sinners, we sin against one another. I'm not excusing our bad behavior. I'm just saying it's going to happen. It has happened. I have hurt you at times individually, most of you. If, if I haven't yet, it's because we haven't been together long enough and you've probably hurt me. I, I can promise you I don't hold it against you. But the thing is, that's what happens when you get a bunch of sinners together. There are gonna be times where there's conflict and patience is required. And besides just sin, okay, we're friends. We can be honest, right? Churches are full of weird people. I mean, just per capita, there's more weird people in a church than any other organization you can possibly name. And, and I don't mean weird like creepy. I mean weird like, like socially awkward, annoying, just plain goofy. And if you're thinking of someone specific when I say this, someone's thinking of you. <laughs> Sorry, it's just true. Um, so... But in the family of God, no matter how sinful we are, no matter, no matter how weird we are, we all should be able to find our place. This is our family. We ought to find acceptance. We ought to find love. And, and when we do hurt one another, which we will, we should be able to work through it. We should be big enough to come and say, okay, this is on me. I, I'm, I may not have started this, but I escalated it and it's my fault. Please forgive me. We should be able to reconcile. So ask God. Is there someone that I need to reach out to? Someone I need to apologize to? Someone I need to forgive? Don't take a risk of messing up God's family. And then here's one. Admonish one another. That's a word we don't use a lot, but it means to warn or reprimand. Last week I said that I as a pastor need for you to admonish me sometimes. If I say something from the pulpit that you know is not biblical or if you see some behavior in me that you know is not right, you, I, I'm asking you to come talk to me. But all of us need that. I mean, I, just because I'm the pastor, I don't get that privilege. All of us need that. How many marriages would be stronger if Christians would have the courage to go up to a, a, a man and say, you can't keep losing your temper with her that way. Or you can't keep disrespecting him like that. 
How many, how much pain would be avoided if we had the courage to say, I don't like how much I see you drinking. Or, you know, you spend a lot of time at the office for somebody with such young kids. Or, I'm worried about you. I haven't seen you in church in weeks. What's going on? And yet, at the same time I say that, we also have to balance it with this command. Clothe yourselves in humility toward one another and consider one another more important than yourselves. See, you can admonish someone and they won't get defensive. You can disagree with someone and they won't get up in arms if you do it graciously, if you do it with humility. And that's, that's the thing. There's very few people that have both boldness and humility, but that's what we require. There's a whole lot of us who just won't say those hard truths because we don't want to make someone offended. And so we need to to pray for boldness. And there's others of us, more the minority, who are perfectly comfortable making someone angry, but we need to learn humility. And so you need to be a judge of yourself and say, which of those do I need more? And maybe you need both. Lord, make me bold, make me humble. And then here's one. Stir up one another to love and good deeds. You know, there are some people who just bring out the best in others. When they're in a room, everybody wants to do more. Everybody wants to try harder. Everybody wants to be right and do what's right. I don't know how many times I've read the book, A Christmas Carol by... Charles Dickens, but uh, there's a part in there where the ghost of Christmas past takes Ebenezer Scrooge back to the time when he's a young man, a young apprentice. His first boss is an old guy named Mr. Fezziwig. And, and Dickens does a good job of drawing this character. Fezziwig is, is this very cheerful guy, and, and, and Scrooge is watching his younger self following the orders that his boss gives him. And he notices how quick he is to do everything Fezziwig says, him and his fellow apprentice. They just, they're just trying to outwork one another to try to impress the boss. And he realizes that he is totally different as a boss than his first boss was because he treats people as if they're less than human. He makes them earn everything they can possibly get from him. He, he rules by fear and intimidation and shame. Whereas his first boss ruled with love and warmth and made you want to do more. And I I say to you today, some of us are naturally that way and and you can probably name some people in this room that you look at and say, whenever I'm with her, whenever I'm around him, I'm just, I want to do more good deeds. But the same Holy Spirit that's in them is in you. And he can make you that kind of person too. He can make you the kind of person that stirs other people up toward love and good deeds. Pray that God would make you a Fezziwig and not a Scrooge. And then finally, there's love one another. And this command is found 16 times in the New Testament. Love one another. This is what Jesus talked about in his last moments with his disciples before he was arrested. I pray that they would love one another. John 17, the great high priestly prayer is all about loving one another. And when we say love, immediately there's a certain breed of Christian that says, eh, that's mushy stuff. Not in the scriptures, it's not. We're not talking about the kind of love they sing about. 
in popular music today. It's not a mushy sentimentality. It actually has very little to do with how you feel, although when you love somebody long enough, you start to like them too, but it's not about the feelings, it's about the actions. Love is actually a verb, it's a choice, it's a decision of the will. The whole point of the Christian life, the whole point of the Christian life is to teach you and me how to love, to love the Lord our God, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. It's as simple as that. As we bear one another's burdens, as we choose to be patient with each other, as we forgive one another when we want to lash out, as we choose to be courageous and admonish one another when we're going off the rails, as we try to encourage and inspire people who are ready to quit, we're learning how to love. The the church is like God's laboratory of love. It's not enough just to listen to the lectures. You've got to actually get into the lab and do the experiments before you've really learned and grown and become the person God wants you to be. And that's what the church is. It's God's laboratory of love. So there's my question. Are you better at that now than you were 10 years ago? Five years ago, two years ago, six months ago? If I interviewed your family and your closest friends, would they say, yes, he or she is much more patient, more sacrificial, more willing to serve others without complaining, and more, more understanding and accepting and encouraging? That should be happening. And if it's not, ask the Lord to do something about it. And here's why. The reason we know what love is is because Jesus laid down his life for us. That's the ultimate act of love. Jesus saw us living in a toxic family across the street. And he didn't just say, well, that's a shame. He came and traded places with us. He came down into our toxicity and was killed for it. And he delivered us into his family, the family of love and the family of light family that will never, ever fail and will never, ever die. And we don't have to live under the porch daydreaming and wishing things were better. We're in our Father's house now, so let's not mess this up. Let's bless our family, the family of God, so much that others will want what we have.